The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Engaging conversation with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Breaking news with Eileen Bell and sports with Morley Scott. This is the Afternoon News on 630 Chad, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. Well, as we've been talking uh, in this past half hour, another tragedy south of the border, this time in Parkland, Florida, after gunman opens fire at uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, killing 17 people and injuring more than a dozen others. We'd like to welcome to the show Austin Eubanks. Austin is a survivor of the 1999 Columbine shooting and now a person in long-term recovery from substance abuse and the chief operations officer for Foundry Treatment Center in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Um, welcome to the show. Austin. Hi, Hi, Austin. I, I, you know, we sit here and we're, we try to make sense of this. This is something that you have gone through. When you heard the news yesterday, what went through your mind? Well, this one was especially close to home for me just because the images were so eerily similar to Columbine, the armored vehicle on the grass, the, hostel, the students running out with their hands above their heads. So every time this occurs, uh, I'm definitely emotionally affected by it, but this one hit especially close to home for me. So I have to ask, uh, I, you know, and I, I don't know how to ask, to be honest with you. On a day in which, just talking about Columbine for a moment, going back to that day, and, and then we'll talk about uh, Florida. Um, going back to that day, it, it it didn't end for you on that day, I guess is what I want to say. I I want to ask you how long it took you to recover. Are you still recovering 19 years later? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always a work in progress. So for me specifically, I was one of the students who was in the library. Um, I was shot twice, and I witnessed the murder of my best friend right in front of me. And um, on that day, I was 17 years old, and I had never used substances of any kind. I never drank. I never smoked weed. Uh, Addiction wasn't something that was prevalent in my family or friend group. I had no known genetic predisposition for it. And as a result of my injury, I was prescribed opiates. Um, And almost immediately, I was drawn to that feeling because I was actually medicating the emotional pain that I was experiencing from that trauma, as opposed to medicating the physical injuries, which is what the medication is intended for. And it was really within a matter of weeks that I was taking those drugs off-label, taking more than prescribed at times that I wasn't prescribed. Uh, And that led to a pretty debilitating addiction that spanned through my 20s. Uh, until after multiple attempts in treatment, uh, I finally found lasting recovery at age 29 uh, and devoted my life to helping people recover from substance abuse as it relates to trauma uh, and being an advocate for uh, stopping not only the addiction pandemic, but also the epidemic of mass violence in America. How how did you find that uh, recovery? Well, it was a long process. So I went to treatment on three occasions before I finally got it. When I finally found lasting recovery, I actually had to stay in residential treatment for 14 consecutive months. Uh, And that's kind of a big misconception in our society is that if you have an addiction problem, you go to treatment for 30 days and then you go back home and you're fine. And it doesn't really work that way. So I actually had to go through the stages of grief that I should have been going through at age 17 and 18 at age 29. 
And by that time, it was compounded with all sorts of micro traumas from a life of turmoil and addiction that I had lived through my 20s. So it was really a long process for me of kind of unwinding all of that and rewiring my brain uh, to be able to live a happy, healthy, pro-social life. I want to talk about more about um, your thoughts on the connection between uh, the violence in America and the opioid epidemic that is happening. But I'm curious to know, are, are you still in contact? Do you still have uh, close friendships with um, the kids that you went to high school with that you went through that day with? You know, I, I don't, unfortunately. And this is a question that I'm asked a lot. Um, I think for a lot of us, no matter how how directly you were affected, it really defined our high school experience. And I never had a big friend group in high school. I, I had a pretty small friend group, but by far and away, Corey was my, my very best friend. Uh, and when I lost him, I really lost the desire to um, attend school altogether. I mean, I was really, I started to hide in my addiction almost right away. I didn't go back to school my senior year in lieu of a private tutor uh, that was offered to the injured survivors. Um, and then never really looked back from there. I graduated with my class and I walked with the class of 2000. But from that point forward, I, I haven't had a whole lot of connection with anybody from Columbine. Austin, were you given, offered any um, mental health treatment at that time? I was, yeah. So there was renowned clinicians from all over the country and really all over the world that came in to donate their time to help after this tragedy. And I had access to all types of services, and I had wonderful parents who, who would have been over backwards to get me the help that I needed. But the feedback was always the same. It was that we just can't reach him. He's not willing to engage in the stages of grief. He's still in shock. What was never said was, what medications is he taking? Let me talk to his primary care physician. Let's collaborate on a treatment plan with physical health and mental health. And I think that's been a real big problem in the American healthcare system is there is just a lack of collaboration between mental health and physical health. And in my case, I was really adversely affected by that. You believe that there is um, a link between the violence that we're seeing and the opioid crisis in America right now, don't you? Absolutely. So being the work that I get to do today and traveling around the country and talking with people who are affected by these events, families, friends, that what initially starts as uh, hundreds of people who are directly affected in a matter of weeks becomes thousands of people because of the way the families are then traumatized. And then from there, you look at it on a macro level across a decade, and the trauma is, is, is unparalleled. And so I'll use one example. I was recently giving a presentation in Phoenix, and a gentleman came up to talk to me afterwards, and he said, I was one of the first responders on the SWAT team that went into the library right after Columbine. And I hugged him, and we both became emotional. And he said, I just wanted you to know, I too am a person in long-term recovery from substance abuse. And of the 16 people that went into the library with me, I'm one of only two who are still alive, and 10 died by overdose or suicide. Oh, my goodness. And that was the SWAT team. So... And, and then you think about the ripple effects of that trauma. And so I think that there is a direct correlation between the way this ripples through our society and the rise in the addiction pandemic, because the country just wants to medicate. Everybody's looking to be numb, to not have to engage in emotion. So you're not saying that, you know, people who get hooked on opioids are committing the violence, but the violence is leading to the opioid crisis. In part. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, in in part. And I want to be clear, I don't think that it is the sole cause, but I do think that it plays a much larger part than people recognize. Yeah. Uh, I have to ask Austin, 
And we spoke about this before we had you on the line. We spoke about it with uh, uh, an anchor from uh, Global Television up here in Edmonton, and we spoke among ourselves here, radio people. We talked about how something like Columbine and the subsequent acts that have happened since Columbine, including the one that happened yesterday, that we'll talk about it, and we'll talk about it, and then we'll stop talking about it. And And I'm wondering, as a survivor of Columbine, how you feel about the fact that media talks about it in the first place, that outrage is there, and that it just goes away after a few days. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I don't think that that's specific just to these events. And, you know, I think that that oftentimes in, in our culture, it's just it, we move at such a rapid pace that it's hard to keep the same level of traction over a significant period of time. The biggest frustration for me is what happens is, the whole entire country divides into primarily two camps, mental health and gun control, mm-hmm. and then nothing gets done. It's a stalemate. Everybody has their talking points that they offer, we, you know, prayers, and everybody tweets their soundbite that they want out in the public, and nothing gets done. So I actually don't take a hard position on either one of those sides. What I advocate for is we need to put funding behind a group of experts that will come together and figure out why this is happening. Gun con- guns play a part, definitely. Mental health plays a part. But I, I want to even go below that. Let's look at the way that we're socializing young men. It's not a coincidence that 100% of these perpetrators are male, and it's not testosterone that's making them do this. We really need to look at the way that we're socializing young men and how adverse childhood experiences are coming into this equation and playing out by way of isolation and loneliness later in life that subsequently leads to ideation about committing a crime like this because only a very very small portion of people who have a desire to commit a crime like this actually go through with it i want to reach the people who are thinking about it austin eubanks was a survivor of the 1999 columbine school shootings he's joining us on the phone this afternoon and we appreciate his time austin you've made some really really great points and one of the questions that andrew and i keep asking ourselves and i think everybody is now asking themselves is when is enough enough when is you know another school shooting another you know pulse nightclub shooting when is another shooting at a at a country music festival when is it going to be enough well that's a great question and i wish i had the answer um you know in my mind i wish enough was enough would have been after columbine Mm -hmm. uh you know i wish it would have i wish there could have been more that was done to prevent future occurrences of this Uh, because it would have been done more to honor those that were lost that day. Uh, The fact that we're still at a place of inaction after this dramatic rise, and it continues to be on the rise, um, the number of school shootings that we've already had this year is, I mean, it's just wholly unacceptable to me. And we're stuck in this stalemate of inaction and disagreement. Um, And that's why, really, I continue to advocate for funding behind a group of experts that can really say, this is why this is occurring and this is what we need to do. And we can't ignore those recommendations. We follow them and we move forward. Uh, Austin, we need to take a quick break. Is it okay to put you, uh, hold you over for a couple of minutes? 
Yeah, that's fine. Uh, I want to ask you when we come back a question that I've rarely asked. I've uh, only been doing radio about seven years, but in all that time, I've only asked this question of uh, two guests. You'll be my third. And the question I want to ask you when we return from break is, because I think your message is so important, because of your unique perspective on this uh, particular issue, I want to ask you what we should have asked you. I, I, I want to know from you, what other message do you want to get out there? I want to give you the floor when we come back, okay? Thank you. Hold the line. It's 2.50 on the 6.30 Chad Afternoon News. Um, We're honoured to have uh, Austin Eubanks joining us this afternoon. He is a survivor of the 1999 Columbine school shootings. He is also in long-term recovery for, from substance abuse and the Chief Operations Officer for Foundry Treatment Centre in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. We want to thank him again for his time. It's a fascinating conversation. Right. I said before the break that I wanted to give you an opportunity. I wanted to give you the floor, Austin. We, I don't want to run out of time and I I don't want you to feel after this conversation that there was one other thing or a couple of other things that you wanted to get across to our listening audience that you didn't have the opportunity to. So the floor is yours right now. Is there, is there more that you want us to hear you say? Yeah, that, I mean, that could be a, a very, very long dialogue, but I do have a, a few things that I just think is, is incredibly important for people to know. And that's not just those who are affected by a trauma or a tragedy of this magnitude. It's really anything in relation to emotional pain. And that is, is with emotional pain, you have to be able to feel it in order to heal it. You have to be able to go through the stages of grief in order to come out on the other side. And so in my case, I had a decade of turmoil that I could have avoided had I developed healthier coping mechanisms early on. So to the communities that are affected by these tragedies, lean on one another for support. Lean on people who are going through the same things with you and seek out people who have been through it before because those are the ones who can tell you how to cope and how to move on. There is such a thing as post-traumatic growth and it doesn't imply that you will ever be the same as you were before a trauma occurs but it, it, it means that you can actually have meaningful development of personal character by way of overcoming the adversity that's experienced after the trauma. And oftentimes that's something really important for people to keep in mind is that there is a light on the end of the tunnel, that it won't always be this darkness, but it takes time and you just have to trust the process and lean into the pain. Don't medicate it, don't run from it. And on a bigger scale, one of the things that I think is really, really important for people to know because we are in such an epidemic of opioid overdose death, is that opiates are actually more effective at relieving the short-term symptoms of emotional pain than they are at improving the symptoms of physical pain. So if you have any underlying element of emotional pain and you are prescribed opiates or you're taking them by way of uh, illegal methods, just know that it is going to be far more likely that you're going to develop a habit than somebody who has not experienced a tragedy or doesn't have an underlying element of emotional pain. Incredibly well said, Austin. You know, this just this morning I sat through a, a two-hour briefing with a military unit that I'm involved with here in Edmonton, and it was about mental health. It was about uh, finding peer support. We talked about um, OSIs, operational stress injuries. We talked about PTSD and about um, the services that are available and that how sometimes when you go to ask for help, when you're ready to get that help, because for a lot of people it takes a long time, 
that sometimes you might not click with the person right away, with the, uh, the person that you're going to see. Um, and we also talked about um, post-traumatic growth, and I think that's, you know, that's a term that is just becoming more mainstream. I've heard it more in the past three or four years, and I think it's a really important one because I think people who think that they have this issue or have a, a challenge, they have a, a mental health challenge, they have the PTSD, they don't see that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that you can grow from these experiences, that you don't have to just be stuck in it for the rest of your life, that there is hope that you can get through. Absolutely, and that's that's really important for people to know, and I had no idea that I would ever be able to regain traction in my life when I was in the thick of, of the emotional pain and the avoidance and the addiction. And now I'm a living example of that post-traumatic growth. There is absolutely no way that I would be here today talking to you or doing the work that I'm doing in these communities without having experienced that trauma and the addiction as a result of it. And so there is light on the other side, and you can actually be a force for change <laughs> in your communities on the other side of this. And so. Um, something for people to definitely keep in mind. I'm curious to know, and I apologize for asking, but I don't know when I would have another opportunity to ask someone like you this question, but oftentimes we hear about survivor guilt. Um, you mentioned that you lost your best friend that day, a call of mine. Did, did you suffer from survivor guilt? Absolutely. Yeah, I actually would say that, that, that my um, suffering mentally afterwards was far more from survivor's guilt than even what would be known as traditional PTSD symptoms. So uh, that survivor's guilt was was um, very, very profound in my life. And, and the questions that come from it, like, why, why me? Why was it me that lived? Why wasn't it him? Why did it play out the way it did? What could I have done different? How could it have resulted in a different outcome? And it takes a long time of talking through those things to be able to rationalize what occurred uh, and move forward from it. You know, I don't know how you do rationalize what occurred because I've never been in the situation that you found yourself in. I've never had my children in the situation that you found yourself in, and I can't rationalize it. Well, and to be quite honest, rationalize probably the wrong word. It was just the first one that came to mind. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, 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 I maybe cope with it. Right. A better term. Like yeah. I, it, 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 yeah, it's an irrational situation. You, you can't rationalize that. The, the, I mean, the violation to sense of safety um, and, and the tragedy and loss. And I, I'm often asked, you know, about forgiveness. Um, mm. and, and, and for me, with these perpetrators, there is no forgiveness. There is something, I, I do believe that there are things that happen in life that are simply unforgivable. Now that doesn't mean I live in this realm of hate and resentment. I don't, but if you were to ask about forgiveness, unfortunately in this scenario, there is none. Did it take you a long time to get to that spot? Yeah, it, I mean, it took me a long time and it's still a work in progress. Yeah. And after, after events like this, and specifically uh, the amount of dialogue I have afterwards with media in combination with the work that I do, um, I have to really focus on self-care for a number of days to make sure that I can keep my equilibrium uh, to be able to continue to do this work. Self-care, so very important. Austin Eubanks, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. You can follow Austin on Twitter at uh, Eubanks Austin. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for sharing your insight. And thank you for the work that you're doing. You guys are so welcome. Thanks for having me. Take care now. Bye-bye. The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad.